This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing, and I'm your host, J. Scott. I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field enjoying God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. We have a great show for you guys today. Uh, we've got my good friend Russ Jacoby out of Flagstaff. Uh, Russ is just uh, fallen in love with the buffalo on the Kaibab Plateau, and he's uh, uh, just a great outfitter. Uh, he knows those buffalo inside and out. He runs uh, trail cameras year-round, and um, he's going to be a great wealth of knowledge here for us, and I'm going to pick his brain on all the things going on in, in, in Arizona up on the Kaibab Plateau with the buffalo herd, uh, with that house rock herd. And um, he's going to tell us some stories about uh, some of the buffalo they've been chasing and, uh, uh, you know, some of the strategies they use and some of the history on the herd. So it's, it's going to be a great show. Uh, before we dive into that, I wanted to cover a few things. I'm getting a lot of good feedback uh, on this J. Scott Outdoors podcast, uh, Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing. Um, I wanted to go over some comments that are uh, being left uh, by text message, by email. Uh, I've seen a few on my Instagram, uh, J. Scott Outdoors Instagram. And I uh, just uh, want to thank you, the listeners, for... Um, you know, spending the time and, and listening and uh, participating uh, by, by commenting. I've uh, got some great comments on iTunes uh, in the reviews section. Uh, if you haven't uh, and you enjoy uh, listening, please go on there and uh, give us some positive comments and give us a five-star rating. Uh, that helps our uh, placement in iTunes and uh uh, all last week, we were bouncing between number one and uh, number seven to ten of, uh, you know, I guess most popular in the outdoor category. And uh, uh, those comments and ratings really help help this out. And uh, we just uh, appreciate you listening and appreciate you taking the time to comment. So. A few of the comments I'm getting, uh, Jay, I'm on episode six and really enjoying these. Can't wait to hear the rest. Uh, another one, up to episode four, keep them coming. Uh, these are great. Thanks do, uh, Thanks for doing this. For us sportsmen, it's like being around a campfire. Uh, your podcasts are awesome. A bunch of people are talking about how much they love them. That's cool. Thank you. Uh, you're rocking it, Jay. Keep it up. Uh, been listening to them every day during training hikes. Please keep them coming. Can we get some more how-to sections for elk, deer, sheep, etc., like the turkey episode? Really great info. Thanks. Yeah, actually, to answer your question, we're going to do a bunch of how-tos. I actually have interviewed uh, a bunch of world champion uh, turkey callers, elk callers. I just did an interview the other day with uh, Brian Langley and his son Braden, both world champion elk callers out of Oregon. Uh, Brian has won the pro division uh, several years, uh, 2013 or 2012 and 13. I'll have to check my notes. Uh, but just a five time state champion in Oregon and just a really good elk caller. Um, we've got a lot of good how-to stuff coming on, on sheep and deer and, and lots of other archery. Uh, going to be speaking with uh, none other than Randy Ulmer, 
uh, Will Primos, um, bunch of commitments, and I'm excited for the future of this show. Uh, here's another one. Loved the Manny Chi podcast. Keep it up. That guy catches giant fish. Yes, he does. I uh, want to thank Manny for being on the show. And, uh, well, let's get into it. Uh, you can follow us at uh, jscottoutdoors.com. You can also uh, follow the Instagram at jscottoutdoors. Uh, my associate, Dar, uh, Dar Colburn, on Instagram. Uh, we have a uh, YouTube channel, J. Scott Outdoors, and uh, we have a Facebook page. So uh, just want to thank you listeners. Let's get into the show here with Russ Jacoby. Uh, Russ is one of the most uh, intellectual, uh, most detail-oriented people I know. Uh, he's very technologically sound. Uh, I call him a lot on advice uh, from anything from tires to GPSs to cameras to you know, topo programs. Um, he's just uh, real in tune with uh, with uh, electronics and technology, and he's just a uh, he's a great hunter and a great family man. So I want to get right into the show. Russ, welcome to the podcast. Um, it was very important to me when I started this podcast to have you know guys that I know and trust and um, that I respect, and you're definitely at the top of the list at that. And um, uh, why don't you tell me, Russ, how you remember you and I meeting, and then I want to dive into uh, some of the hunts and stuff you have going on. Okay. Well, Jay, first I want to say thank you. Um, I appreciate you thinking of me, and uh, I consider you to be a close friend as well, and um, I value and respected our time outdoors. So I guess yeah. um, I knew of Jay Scott from the articles that you have written, um, but I had never actually met you in person until... I believe the first time we met was we bumped into each other when we were scouting for a sheep hunt over in um, 15D. Yeah, and if I remember right, you were with our mutual friend Kelly Gibson. Um, I met you guys both on the road that same day. They had just flown the sheep survey in 15D, and you guys were scouting because I believe Kelly had a tag that year. And did you have the tag the year before that, or was it two years prior to that? Uh, it was the year before. And I remember you shot a nice um, ram with your bow. Um, tell me a little bit about that hunt briefly and tell me about uh, who was with you and um, just tell me how that experience went. Well, I guess I consider myself to be relatively young to draw a sheep tag in Arizona. When I, when I called and found out I was drawn, I was floored. I never expected to be drawn at, at my age. Um, I'm an avid archery hunter, so I knew I was going to do it with my bow. Um, but my sheep experience was pretty limited. Um, so I approached it how I approached most things. I did a lot of investigating and research, and I involved my family. Um, my family is very important to me, and uh, we made it a family event. So we hunted um, most of the month and passed on a lot of rams and ended up harvesting a ram on Christmas Eve. So it was somewhat of a fairy tale, fairy tale story because um, – you know, my daughter, um, who was a teenager at the time, got to accompany on some stocks. And uh, my wife was a big part of the hunt. A lot of friends and family were a big part of the hunt. But when I finally harvested my ram, my son Jacob was there. And anybody that knows me and that hunts around me knows that Jacob's a big part of what I do. So I actually shot my ram at 30 yards with Jacob standing next to me when I shot it, which was really special. And how old was Jacob at the time, Russ? 
Uh, let's see. Jacob would have been about nine years old at the time, I think. And uh, he's not your typical youth hunter. He's um, had a lot of experiences that most youths don't get. Yeah, I mean, that that kid's probably seen more animals shot than most grown men um, have seen in their lifetime. Uh, I hear f- from different guys how much of a hand he's becoming each day. I mean, the last time I think I saw you, um, you and Jacob were with us on Terry Lancaster's hunt in 15D, and um, it's just a real pleasure to be around, just a great kid, and I'm sure it was great having him on your sheep hunt. And uh, didn't you hunt like 24 or 5 days or something? Yeah, it, it was Christmas Eve, so we killed it on the 24th. I didn't hunt every single day, but I hunted most of the days. There was a, a few days I had to go to my day job, um, and there was a few days we lost because of weather. Um, but it was it was an intense hunt. We We scouted, I think, 40 days before season, and so it was a really fun adventure. That's awesome. Got a really nice ram with your bow. And um, for for those of you that don't know Russ, um, Russ is an incredibly passionate hunter. And um, uh, you're also a Arizona Game and Fish uh, certified and master instructor, aren't you, Russ? Yeah, I'm one of the hunter ed instructors in Arizona and have a lot of passion for that, trying to help um, preserve hunting for future generations. Well, I want to dive a little bit into your passion for the buffalo. Um, if you would, give me a little bit of history of the buffalo up on the Kayabab and tell me a little bit about how you got started and then how it's basically turned into just a just a full-time passion for you. I, w- I want to dive into that. Well, um, the, the history of the buffalo in Arizona is probably a little storied and checkered, if I can use those terms. Uh, the herd was originally started um, by the man of by the name of Buffalo Jones, and he was, um, I guess I'd say a character from the stories that you read about him. But he had a plan to bring uh, bison to Arizona and start a private herd up in the House Rock Valley, and the idea was that it would be a more hardy breed of cattle that could withstand drought and the extreme conditions that you might face up there. And the experiment didn't quite work out as he planned, trying to crossbreed uh, bison, wild bison with, with buffalo and come up with um, either beefalo or cattalo, depending on the terminology you want to use. And being the character that he was, he hatched a plan to sell him back to the state of Arizona. So our buffalo herd was actually started by a private herd that has some cattle genetics mixed into it and um, was purchased by the state of Arizona from, a, from an individual. And then it's kind of grown from there. Um, for a long time, they've tried to manage the herd in the House Rock Valley at around 100 animals as a as a management target. And the herd that we have today is probably approaching about 600 animals. Um, we don't exactly know for sure because buffalo are extremely hard to survey. Um, but three years ago, um, Jacob and I took a picture of right at 400 buffalo at one time. So we know at that time there was at least that many. So based on uh, the trail cameras that we have and our experience in the field, we believe there's close to 600 buffalo on the plateau. Wow, that's amazing. Russ, um, give us an example of, say, last season or already this season. I mean, how many buffalo, how many tags are there? How many buffalo, you know, do you guys, how many of those hunts do you guys guide? You know, how, how many buffalo did you you know, see on the ground yourself. Give me, give me some numbers in that regard. So the, the herd on the Kayabab, as we've already said, is doing really well. 
um, and that could be their demise, actually. Um, the Park Service, um, where the, Buff the Grand Canyon National Park is, is an area where the buffalo go, and it's somewhat of a haven to them, and they, they tend to spend a lot of time in there. And with uh, the objectives of the Grand Canyon, Grand Canyon National Park to preserve that area, um, there's an impact from the bison being there. So they're wanting to reduce the herd numbers. So Game of Fish has tried several things to reduce the herd. Um, one of the things that they've tried is uh, something called companion tags. You know, they issue the draw tags each year, but then to try to get more buffalo harvested, they would issue a tag if you were drawn for deer. You could go buy an over-the-counter buffalo tag. And most hunters have a love-hate relationship with the companion tag system. Um, it was great because people could actually get a tag, but it diluted the deer hunt a little bit. People were applying for the deer hunt just because they wanted to go hunt buffalo. And the deer hunt on the Kaibab is important to a lot of people. And it concentrated a large number of hunters on the fence line at one time. So that system wasn't working very well. So Gaming Fish approached um, last year a bunch of experts, and they put together something called the Bison Stakeholder Group. And they had some meetings where they talked about we like to reduce bison numbers. How do we best do that? And it's not rocket scientists. The way to do that is to remove female bison from the plateau. And we needed to remove larger numbers of female bison from the plateau. So prior to that change in the hunt structure last year, there was less than 50 buffalo a year harvested on the plateau. And that was a combination of um, car vehicle accidents, um, the draw tags, as well as any of the companion tags that were issued. And they also had some population management or depredation type hunts, but they just were not keeping up anywhere close to the recruitment rate of the bison herd. So the hunt structure changed last year. What they did is they had the normal draw for buffalo is a spring hunt that runs from January through June. And last year there were 15 tags on that hunt. And it's an any buffalo tag, but the vast majority of the hunters shoot a bull, bull bison because they're trophy hunters. But at the end of that season, they put together a hunt structure where you had buffalo hunts that last two weeks, and they would go back to back to back to back for a total of 16 weeks. So you had eight hunts with seven tags per hunt for a total of 56 tags. And that hunt structure was very successful. It was an experiment last year, and it worked very well. Um, they're still compiling the final numbers, but um, they had 70% success rate. Um, and the vast majority of the buffalo harvested were female bison. So they were much more successful with that hunt structure than, than others that they had tried in the past. Um, as far as numbers go, um, there's not very many guides or outfitters to operate legally on the plateau for bison. Um, as far as I know, last year, I think there were about four or five buffalo harvested by other outfitters on the plateau. Um, my group that I work with, we harvested um, 10 times that many. We were pushing over 40 buffalo last year on the plateau. That's unbelievable. Which month would you say was the primary month that the um, most buffalo got harvested? Well, the, the spring hunt and the fall hunts are very different. So the spring hunt, the difficult thing is, is access. And that hunt runs from January through June. Um, we killed the first buffalo taken last year, and it was killed at the end of January. Um, in February, we killed two buffalo, and then no buffalo were harvested for eight weeks. So on the spring hunt, um, the hunters that were able to get access early in the season and know what they're doing could be successful.
But in the later season, it starts to open up where there's less snow and more people can access it through more traditional access means. And when that happens, um, all the hunting pressure tends to push the buffalo in the park. So the majority of the buffalo harvested on the spring hunt last year were actually harvested in the late part of the hunt in May or June. Um, but that changes each year depending on the snow levels. Um, on the fall hunts, it didn't really matter if you had a hunt in August or a hunt in November. The hunters that put their time in were successful. Gotcha. And uh, wasn't there a certain buffalo? I mean, you you have most of them named. I mean, wasn't there a certain buffalo that you were chasing with the hunter that, uh, you know, had, had quite a story and a history, a red ear tag or something? So we um, we get to know all the buffalo kind of personally, and they, they become almost like friends. Um, which, you know, I have a, a lot of friends that, that aren't hunters that ask me, how can, how can you shoot a friend? And if you understand wildlife conservation and the North American model of conservation, um, you know, to protect the herd, one of the things you need to do is to remove the excess animals. Um, and the funding that comes from hunters and sportsmen actually pays for the conservation of the buffalo. And as we've already said, there's too many buffalo. And the only effective method they found so far to reducing the herd is, is sport hunting. So, yes, we get to know the buffalo very well. And uh, there was a red tag buffalo that we harvested last year. Um, it's a bull we've been watching for several years, and uh, we nicknamed him Hugo. And that particular buffalo was one that was um, one that we'd hunted many times, and it finally came together last year, and it was a really special hunt. Um, How old was he, Russ? So to get an accurate age, um, they section a two. And we won't get the results back on that here for another month or two. But gotcha. he was probably over a decade old. That's awesome. And out out of the majority of um, tags, they, it's any buffalo, cow, or bull, or do they specify that certain amount are cow and certain certain amount are bull? Well, that, that that's a, a big question. So let me give a little bit of background that will help answer that. Um, most hunters don't get experience hunting buffalo because, number one, they can't get drawn. Number two, if they do get drawn, um, they go one time, um, and they don't know anybody else has gotten drawn. So most of the hunters that hunt buffalo are very inexperienced. And buffalo are probably one of the hardest animals to be able to tell a female from a male buffalo. And so the bulls from the cows, even um, hunters that spend a lot of time researching and learning about it, think that they've got it figured out, but when they actually get in the field, they have a very difficult time telling bulls from cows. Um, so the guinea fish has tried different hunt structures of just bull tags, any buffalo, or cow and yearling tags. And to a certain extent, hunters almost always shoot bulls, and that, that was kind of a problem. So last year they had something um, called the, the clinic that they put on just before the fall hunts. And it was a meeting at the Gaming Fish office. They invited all the tag holders. Um, they asked Quirky Richardson and myself to come speak at the class. And we tried to cover things like wildlife identification, shot placement, hunting tactics, and techniques. And a portion of that um, event is actually available on YouTube. You go on YouTube and look for um, Arizona Gaming Fish Bison uh, Summit or Clinic, you should be able to find it. And that particular clinic, um, made a big difference. This last fall was the first hunt structure where we were successful in harvesting, um, targeting female bison on the plateau. 
So until last year, the majority of the bison harvested were bulls, but last year was the first year where we were finally successful at harvesting cows and doing that reliably. That's great. That's great. Russ, give me an idea of how, how much, how many pounds of meat, say on a full size um, cow buffalo and ha- how many pounds of meat on a full size um, uh, bull buffalo are, are you getting? So a buffalo, when you put one on the ground, you've got some work in front of you. Um, people are usually under prepared for what they're going to experience when they get a buffalo on the ground. Um, on the hoof, um, you know, a female buffalo is 800 pounds plus. Um, we've harvested female bison that are pushing 1,500 pounds, and that's not a made-up number. We've weighed them. Um, a bull bison can weigh over a ton, um, but there's a lot of bull bison that are 1,200 to 1,800 pounds. When you break an animal down, what you get is the hide and the head and then the meat. And even if you debone a buffalo, um, a bull buffalo, you're going to get three, maybe 600 pounds of meat, somewhere in that range. And a cow bison, you're going to get, you know, 200 to 400, something like that. Um, it depends a lot on the age of the animal and the body condition. Um, different times of the year, the buffalo will fatten up in the summer. And then throughout the winter, they're burning that fat off. And they'll, they'll lose hundreds of pounds of weight throughout the winter. When do the um, buffalo rut? When is their breeding season? Well, if you ask the bulls, they'll tell you year-round. Uh, <laughs> I think that's true for most species. But um, for the cows, they're less receptive. Um, what we see may not actually coincide with what the experts will tell you, but the traditional breeding season would be um, after the snow melts in the spring. So, you know, by March and April, you're seeing the last year's calves being born, and you'll see uh, the bulls will start gathering up with cows. And then as you get into the summer, by the time June, July, and August rolls around, um, the rut has peaked and is, then is winding down. Um, but we'll see bulls exhibiting rutting behavior even after that. So if the cow doesn't take and she comes back into estrus a month later, you'll see those, those rutting activities happen. And for people that want to see bison, one of the best times to see them is in that June, July time frame. You can go up to the Kaibab. And uh, the main roads where there's big meadows, you can find bison there pretty commonly just inside the Grand Canyon National Park by the pay station. And it's really fun to watch them. Yeah, I've I've seen them pretty extensively in um, Yellowstone and um, up in that area. And, and when they're grunting and, and um, really getting after each other, it's uh, it's definitely a sight to see. Do you see that quite often? Yeah, you see that commonly in the summer. Um, it's almost a traffic problem when the tourists are there along the highway. They'll pull over on the side of the road, bison will block the road, and they're a much different critter when they're inside the park than when they leave the park. So they definitely know where that park boundary is. You know, they do. Um, part of it, too, is they're even a different animal when they leave the pavement and they're out in the, in, in the national park, but away from the main road. So I think what happens there is you can imagine you're a buffalo standing in the meadow and a car comes by. Well, they run away. And then the next time the car comes by and nothing happens, they just stand there. And then pretty soon they're, they're used to the car being there and it doesn't bother them. But they know that when they leave that park, um, they get treated a little bit differently. But yeah. when they leave the pavement, even within the park, they act more like a wild animal. You can walk up on them in the thick stuff 
and they'll take off and act like a really skittish wild animal. Russ, have you been fortunate to draw a buffalo tag and get one yourself yet? I have not. Um, you know, we've kind of lost count, but I think I've done over 300 buffalo in Arizona now, and I've never been drawn myself. That's unbelievable. Have you done many of those hunts with a bow, or are they mostly rifle? So the majority of the hunters tend to use a rifle. Um, we have had archery hunters. Um, there's muzzleloader hunters. But the vast majority of the hunters use a rifle. What's interesting is that the shot distances with a rifle typically aren't that much different than the archery hunters. A lot of buffalo are taking um, sit and stands through their travel routes, through water or through salt licks. And uh, the shots in the forest tend to be up close. So whether they're shooting rifles or archery tackle, we see the hunters typically get shots under 40 yards. Have there been any cases of the buffalo actually attacking or, you know, getting getting cornered and, and you know, coming after and, and, and goring any humans? Has there been any cases of that? Um, so buffalo, yes, to, to put it short, is that there are instances, um, fortunately not many. A buffalo is an extremely, extremely large animal, and they're a little different than most of the game animals we hunt in Arizona in that most of the time, once you find them, they already know that you're there, and they don't always run away. Um, a lot of times, they're not afraid of you, and so they may stand their ground or they'll decide to leave on their own timetable. Um, they don't have the same natural predators that a lot of the ungulates that we hunt have, so they behave a little bit differently. Uh, a wounded bison is certainly going to defend itself. And so a bison that's not wounded tends to just leave. But one that um, is wounded can be a problem if you come up on it. So you need to be careful about that. There's actually a confirmed incident in Arizona where a hunter followed a wounded bison into the thick trees. And I wouldn't say he attacked the hunter. I'd say that the hunter got too close and the buffalo defended himself. And that particular hunter actually took a horn through the butt cheek. And, um, you know, that's a life-threatening injury. But fortunately, he was um, with EMTs and some other trained medical professionals that were able to keep him from bleeding to death, and they sought medical attention, and you know he survived with a, quite the story to tell. Yeah, I'm sure he's got an incredible story. Um, what are some of the tactics that you use to keep track of the buffalo and to monitor them and to actually hunt them? What you know, what, what do you do? Do you glass them? What, what's your main tactics? Well, the, the buffalo herd has changed their behavior in the last 10 years. Um, 10 years ago, they would breed and um, drop their calves down in the House Rock Valley. Um, through changes in uh, the available food sources and the hunting pressure and human activity, the buffalo have pretty much quit coming down into the House Rock Valley. and They pretty much stay year-round up on top of the Kaibab Plateau. And they spend the vast majority of their time inside the Grand Canyon National Park, where currently hunting is not permitted. So that presents a challenge. We know there's buffalo there, but we're not allowed to pursue them. And we love the opportunity to do that, but we're not currently able to legally do that. So anytime you're fighting the National Park boundary condition where man has artificially drawn a line that prevents you from hunting in a certain area, you've got to kind of open up a bag of tricks and try different things to be successful. The buffalo spend a relatively small portion of their time on the national forest where you can legally hunt them. For those reasons, it's important that when they come off the park, that you're in the right place at the right time. And um, the vast majority of the buffalo are shot in 12A West. And that particular unit 
there's 13 miles of fence line that are important, and that's between Fire Point and the Grand Canyon National Park base station. So 90 plus percent of the buffalo harvested are harvested within a mile or two of that fence line. So we run a lot of trail cameras on that fence line, and we cover a lot of trails, water sources, and salt licks in that area that help um, to identify where the bison are coming in and out of the park and putting hunters in the right spot at the right time. So there's a lot of legwork that goes into providing hunters the opportunities to, to get a shot to harvest a bison in a legal way off the Grand Canyon National Park. Now, when we say salt licks, people have a hard time kind of envisioning that. But in Arizona, it's currently legal and supported by the Game of Fish to use 50-pound um, salt blocks intended for the livestock industry as a way to um, put a buffalo and a hunter in the same spot at the same time. So last year, we took 6,000 pounds of salt to the Kaibab, and we put it out in 50-pound blocks. And all of those 50-pound blocks were carried on a backpack usually a half a mile from a road into a ridge or a gully where buffalo like to go. And there's typically a trail camera there that monitors when the buffaloes come and go. What are the conditions this year? I know we've had a mild winter. Um, maybe compare this year to other years past, similar timing, uh, you know, being able to get in, not being able to get in. Give, give me an idea where we're at and how that affects the buffalo and their movements. Okay. So, Historically, um, we get snows in the last five to ten years that come in uh, November or December, maybe mid to late December, and they'll last um, until March or April. This year is much different. Um, when I say snows, in the past we'd have you know two to ten feet of snow, and you pretty much cannot get there with anything but a track vehicle. You say a track vehicle, a snowmobile, a snowcat, or one of the ATV or side-by-sides with tracks on the machine. It, the snow is just too deep to try to get in there with any type of four-wheel drive with chains or anything like that. Because we're talking like four, five, six feet, seven feet, eight feet of snow? Or more sometimes. Or more, okay. When my dad harvested his bison, um, in the open areas where the sun was hitting it, snow was six foot deep. And where he harvested his bison, we had to snowshoot out of a canyon where there was drifts of 11 or 13 feet of snow. So wow. there can be a tremendous amount of snow on the Kaibab at times. This year, we've got less than two foot of snow, and um, it's been kind of an interesting season. It's much different than what we'd expect. Um, it's unusual to be able to access anything on the plateau where the buffalo are at in January or February unless you have tracks. And this year, people are able to get in there with quads um, by being persistent or traveling where tracks have been before them. And that's kind of a problem. You know, there's twice as many tags this year. There's 30 permits on the spring hunt, and they shorten the season. So it's about a month shorter than it has been in the last few years, and there's twice as many tag holders. So when you put that many people in a small area, um, it just leads to, I don't want to say conflicts, but um, increased hunting pressure and difficulty for the hunters to, to kind of get an undisturbed area for them to hunt in. So, I mean, if you've got, Hand, you know, more people moving around, how much does that affect the buffalo patterns and the reality, maybe some of the people that don't know the country, are they a lot of times just messing it up for everybody? Well, most people are going to wait one to two decades to get a buffalo tag. 
And when they finally get one, they're excited. And I don't blame them. But they're inexperienced because they've never been drawn before and they don't know anyone that's been drawn before. They never got to hunt them. And even if they have hunted them before, they've probably done it one time at the most. So, yeah, they go out there and they try to find the buffalo and they're doing what good hunters do. They go pound the remote areas and they try to figure it out. Um, we try to help with that. You know, we, we have a unique position. Um, this may be different than how other outfitters handle other hunts. You know, Jay, you're known for doing some of the biggest elk in Arizona um, and some of the biggest sheep in Arizona. And the places where you hunt them and how you hunt them, I don't want to say it's top secret, but you don't openly share exactly where you go. You know, you do a great job of educating people and, and that kind of stuff. But the, the approach is much different because of all the effort and the time you put in and, and what you provide. The buffalo is a little different. You know, hunters hire us and, and want us to come help them fulfill their lifelong dream of har- harvesting a trophy buffalo. And we're very good at doing that. But part of them being able to harvest that buffalo, because it's such a limited area, is I have a job of keeping the other hunters off their back long enough to make that happen. So we actually end up helping other hunters that don't actually hire us to make sure that the hunter that does hire us can be successful. So things like the clinic is important. And we have a very open policy of sharing with the other hunters um, where the buffalo movements are and what's happening because we want all the hunters to be successful. Um, It's good for the herd. It's good for our public relations. And it's good for our clients to hire us because we're able to help manage the hunt in a way where everyone is successful instead of tripping over each other. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious that, that you care enough about the buffalo that you're not concerned over one guy or another having a successful hunt. You obviously want the clients that have booked with you to have have a good hunt and a, and a nice experience, but you also know that you know a bunch of buffalo need to be harvested, and the more successful everyone can be, the better off it is for the whole. And... Um, I know several people that have hunted with you up there on the plateau and they all came back just raving about how energetic and, you know, how knowledgeable you are. Um, What kind of advice maybe would you offer to someone that's, let's say they don't even have the money to do a guided hunt. Um, I know you get approached all the time. I mean, what are some, what are some tips that you would possibly give them other than maybe just calling you on the phone and, and, um, communicating uh, with you, what other tips might you give? So, you know, it sounds weird to say this, but I encourage people to call me. You know, I'm very open with my phone number, um, and I tell people to call me 24-7. I get calls at 2 in the morning, rest, I got a buffalo on the ground, I don't know what the heck to do. And we've bailed a lot of people out. We have people show up in Flagstaff middle of the night, and their buffalo's rotting, and it needs to get in their processor. So we've got access to be able to get it to a taxidermist or processor in the middle of the night. So the things that we cover with people are some of the real practical stuff. Where do you take it when you get one? How do you deal with it when it gets on the ground? Where do you hunt them? How do you hunt them? If people will contact us, we are really open about saying, hey, they're out of the park now or they're not out of the park now. Because it helps everybody. Um, last year, here's a good example. You know, we had seven hunters at a time on those fall hunts. And when we were on the plateau, hunt success was almost 100%. When we weren't on the plateau, hunt success was almost 0%. And that's whether a hunter hired us or not. So people say, well, why should I hire you? Well, the hunters that hire us are going to get in the best spots and kill the best animals. Um, The other hunters, we're going to put them in good spots, but 
you know, we're putting in so much effort and work. It's our job to put our hunters on those best opportunities. Um, once they're harvested, then yeah, we'll help the other hunters in great spots. When we're hunting, maybe what we consider to be the best spot, we might put them in a second or third chair spot, but they're still better off than if they were off trying to do it on their own. And one of the big problems on the plateau, and I think it's a problem a lot of places, is the use of OHVs. You know, it's real frustrating to hike into a spot, you're trying to hunt it, and here comes some guy in a quad right past you. And if you're in the middle of a of a normal unit, the animal might move to the next canyon over, no problem, just follow them over there. But when you buffalo hunt, it's not like that. When a quad comes by, a buffalo goes to the next canyon over, but it's inside the national park, and nobody can legally pursue them in there. So it disturbs the hunter that was trying to do it the right way, so to speak. So it's really important to rein in the quad use on a plateau. One of the things I tell people is leave your quad at home. You don't need it. You know, the plateau, you can almost always get within a half mile of an animal with your truck. And um, a lot of places you can't get any closer than that because of the trees, even with a quad. So you don't really need it. The main roads are all good enough. You can drive your vehicle there, and they tend to be a lot quieter than quads. And with the side-by-sides, that's the problem. It's the noise. It pushes them right back inside the park. So we want hunters to call us and talk to us. We can educate them about how to use a side-by-side, when to use a side-by-side. And one of the most important things we share with hunters is what not to do. And buffalo hunting, there's some important things not to do. People that, that do those things aren't successful. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, Russ, where do people, how can they contact you um, through your website? Why don't you give your website address or your email or, or uh, I'm going to link out on my site if you'd rather do that. Um, uh, how, how do people get a hold of you? So there's many ways to get a hold of me. I don't actually run a website um, and people are shocked to find that out. And people ask, why not? Well, I invite you to go put 50 buffalo in the dirt this year and see how much time you have to do to do a website. I literally don't have time to do it. I'd rather be in the field hunting than writing stuff on a website. So, you know, you can contact Jay Scott. Jay knows how to get a hold of me. Uh, my personal cell phone number, which Jay can link in here, is 928-814-9622. And I hand that out to everyone. And I tell them, call me anytime, day or night. If I can take the call, I will. If I won't, leave me a message and I'll call you back. Um, I text a lot of people. I get a lot of texts from hunters traveling to and from the plateau. If you text me and I don't respond, it's because I'm on the plateau and we don't have cell coverage. Um, I have two satellite phones, and I check my voicemail when I'm hunting multiple times throughout the day, and I call people back, even from the plateau when we're hunting up there. Um, you can how, limit, how limited is the cell service up there, Russ? Well, let me give one more contact information, and we'll get sure, to that. Sure, absolutely. If you contact the Arizona Game and Fish Department in Flagstaff, um, they may or may not hand out my phone number, um, but they will get in touch with me, give me your phone number, and I can call you back. Um, if you contact the wildlife managers um, in any of the units, um, anywhere near the Kaibab, you know, unit 12, unit 13, um, 12A, 12B, any of the wildlife managers know how to get a hold of me. They'll get in touch with me. Uh, another great way is obviously email. And my personal email is coyote, C-O-Y-O-T-E, rustler, R-U-S-T-L-E-R, at gmail.com. And that comes from my love of killing coyotes. Um, now, you had a second question there, Jay. 
and um, I forgot it already. <laughs> Actually, I forgot it too. It's all right, Russ. Um, t- let's let's talk real fast about since you brought that subject up of coyotes. Um, have you heard about um, there's a push in Nevada to ban um, uh, coyote uh, contest, uh, calling contest, and 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 predator hunting? Not predator hunting in general, but coyote calling contests. Have you have you heard about that? I have. What are your thoughts on that, Russ? Well, social media has changed uh, the face of hunting a lot in recent years. You know, I'm Skyping Jay Scott from Flagstaff down in the valley on a little handheld computer, and that technology is just amazing. You know, I, I grew up hunting with my dad and my grandfather, and my grandfather was passed on. But if I could show my grandfather my modern cell phone, he would be blown away. You know, the fact that I can take pictures and video and do internet and make phone calls and video conference from a handheld device the size of a pack of cards is just amazing. Well, with that technology comes the ability of, you know, Kendall Jones on Facebook. Um, There's some cheerleader in Texas that's world famous because of her hunting. And that tends to polarize people. We have sportsmen that are huge supporters and you have anti-hunters that are very upset by the things that she posts on Facebook. So I don't know that we have the answers to those kinds of issues yet, but what I see happening is it's polarizing people. Um, Whether it's their politics, their religious, or other personal beliefs, it polarizes folks. And my advice is that we all get along. You know, if you don't particularly agree with the concept, I'm sure there's something I don't agree with on yours. I respect you. You should respect what we do. Calling contests give us a lot of maybe negative publicity, um, but the good thing from a coyote calling contest is uh, it's a way to reduce predator numbers at critical times. Um, if you understand conservation, things like uh, antelope ponds um, do really poorly where there's large coyote numbers. Um, the, the pond recruitment is almost 0%. And in Arizona, we see our antelope herd continue to decline, and the main impact on that is habitat loss and coyotes. So I'm, I'm a big supporter of killing coyotes in any way, shape, or form. And unfortunately, we get some negative publicity for that from coyote calling contests. Sure. Sure. Russ, um, it's been uh, awesome talking to you here. I want, I'd like to finish with you telling the story. Um, I wasn't sure if it was Jacob or your daughter or both. Um, I believe in the last couple of years, they both have gotten elk tags and, um, Seems like there was one pretty good story with one or one or both of them on their elk um, with a big lightning storm and such. Can tell me about that? Okay. Well, that's my daughter's elk hunt last year. Um, my children are, um, I guess, a little spoiled from the fact that they get exposed to a lot of things other children don't. Um, they both have had trophy bull tags and trophy um, mule deer tags at a relatively young age. You know, Jacob's his middle teen years and my daughter um, is just 19. So at the age of 18, she drew a early rifle bull tag on the peaks here in Flagstaff. And you know, the peaks aren't known for the size of bulls that you might experience in some of the more popular units like nine or 10 or three C. But it's the type of hunt that I think is a great hunt for a youth hunter. Um, they have bugling bulls, rifle in their hands, and they got an opportunity to kill a really nice, what I consider a nice trophy elk for a youth. So my daughter Kaylee is a college student. 
we needed to try to keep her hunt relatively short so she wouldn't miss as much school. Um, and our family hunting comes first, but sometimes things like college get in the way. So, <laughs> um, as it I love that rule, we were overcommitted, and uh, you know, opening morning for Kaylee's hunt starts on a Friday. And so, where do you think I was Thursday at eight o'clock in the evening? Looking for elk. Nope, I was on the Kayabab helping buffalo hunters. Oh man! <laughs> I got back to Flagstaff around ten o'clock that night, and uh, it was after midnight where we hiked up on the mountain. But we got up on the peaks um, in the middle of the night before her hunt, and I shouldn't have done that. I should have told the other hunters no and and just go help Kaylee on her hunt. But I can't do that. I just can't. I I love the buffalo hunt. And I consider it my responsibility to go help those other hunters. So I've made sure everything was squared away. I had helpers running the hunters and made sure I met the hunters that we were helping and the hunters that we weren't helping just to make sure that they felt comfortable and that people weren't going to be fighting over spots that opening day. We got up on the mountain and went to bed. And we were pretty dang tired the next morning. Um, We were actually woken up by uh, elk bugling. um, And it was already legal shooting light and we were still in our cot still in our bunch so we hurried and got up and took off and our plan was to hunt relatively close to our spike camp but best laid plans (laughs) we ended up going up and over the top of the mountain and only had wait a minute it doesn't surprise me one bit that (laughs) your your long legs started walking i've never seen anything quite quite like how you walk around but go ahead we had minimal gear and we went up and over the top of the mountain and we were in bugling bulls all day long. And uh, Kaylee, she's a she's a good hunter. She doesn't complain. She's one of my favorite hunting companions. She's just a workhorse. She's got long legs, loves to hike. And um, I actually have a friend from work that drew the same tag. And he was accompanying us and kind of learning how to hunt. And uh, it's his first ever elk tag. So he was just there to kind of learn and, and uh, enjoy the hunt. And, and he ended up killing a, a nice bull the next day. But we take Kaylee up and over the mountain in bugling bulls all day, get her up close to an elk, um, less than 40 yards from an elk that we wanted to harvest and could not get a shot at this bull. We spent an hour and a half within 40 yards of this bull and could not get a shot with a rifle. It was crazy. Trees were so thick and there were so many cows, we just could not get any closer, couldn't get the right shooting angle. So we just watched this herd for almost two hours. Um, Eventually, the gig was up and they moved off. And we followed that bull off the mountain, and we tried a half dozen times to get on that bull, and we never did. Um, which turned out to be a Cinderella story because we got on a bigger bull, and uh, it was a tough to get a shot. But I'm going to brag on Kaylee a little bit. She stepped up and put in a really nice shot on a bull at about 50 yards through some really thick trees and hit it perfect. It went a short distance and went down. Um, so that part of the hunt was you know, pretty Cinderella. But at that point, it, it turned kind of ugly. Um, the rain kind of came in, and we were way on top of the mountain. got dark, and, um, you know, you got all this meat there in relatively warm conditions, and you get off the mountain. So we broke it down, hung it in trees, got off the mountain, and got, got home, actually, um, without our elk, and it was after midnight. Um so we got up with about two hours of sleep, and we took the mule, and we hiked back up on the mountain the next day. And most hunters were smart enough to stay home that day. I, I don't usually stay home, but I probably should have. It was <laughs> one of the most intense lightning, 
in horizontal rainstorms I have ever been in. And I can remember walking up the mountain thinking, is this such a good idea? And it took us about half the day to get back to where her elk was. And um, we had the mule with us. And just before we got to her elk, probably a half hour before, the, the mule, who was much smarter than us, decided he'd had enough. <laughs> and, um, he saw a window of opportunity and he seized it and he took off on us. And so instead of loading the meat on the mule and packing it off the hill and being done after weathering the storm, we're on top of the mountain and the mule ran off with about half our gear. So we got what we could of her elk and hiked off and we went back the next day and repeated the performance from the day before. Caught the mule, got to the elk, got it loaded and got it off the mountain. And we didn't lose any of the meat, and we were able to help some other hunters get their elk off as well. But we had a pretty intense two days in a lightning storm getting her elk off the mountain. That's an awesome story. Well, congrats to you, and congrats to her. And uh, I want to finish here. Uh, I want you to tell me how important it is to you that, you you know, I know you. I know you're a family man. But how important is is hunting and hunting with your family? What does it mean to you, Russ? Well, people ask me what's my favorite hunting season, and I ask them which one's open. Um, I don't know anything any different. I don't know if that makes me shallow or narrow-minded, but um, I went on my first deer hunt when I was about two weeks old. I, back in those days, they didn't have baby backpacks. So my dad bundled me up and stuck me in a regular backpack and took me with him. And I've just been hunting ever since. So that's what my family does. I mean, we're hunters. We um, spend a tremendous amount of time in the woods as a family, chasing animals and hopefully contributing to wildlife conservation in Arizona. And that's our passion. That's awesome. Russ, it's um, been great to talk with you and uh, I've admired you over the years. Love sharing hunting camp with you. And uh, it's always fun to give you a text at, you know, 1030 at night going, hey, Russ, what's up with this new topo program or uh, Russ is a very tech technologically sound guy, and so most of the time, if I'm looking into a camera or a video camera or or uh, want to get a new topo program, instead of doing a bunch of research, I just call Russ because I know that he's already got it all figured out. And um, kudos to you, buddy, for um, being as thorough as you are. And um, I look forward to our next adventure. And Thanks for spending some time here with us. I know this uh, won't be the last time I'm going to want to have you on here as a guest, and we've got a lot of issues and topics to talk about, and I just want to thank you for being with us today. Jay, I appreciate you asking me, and um, appreciate what you do to try to further hunting in Arizona. You too, buddy. You take care. Tell the family hello, and I look forward to our next, uh, next time out in the woods. Uh, Good luck to everyone in the draw, and if you get drawn for buffalo or Anything like that, give me a shot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nobody that puts in more time and has the passion that you do. I mean, to run the amount of trail cameras and, and you know, spend the time up there, uh, you know, you have the respect of all the wildlife biologists. I mean, half the time they're asking you what you think. And, you know, that that says a lot to me. And, and knowing your character, absolutely. If anybody has a buffalo tag, um absolutely need to call Russ and and give him a chat and uh you know book his services cuz he does a phenomenal job. So Russ, thank you and uh tell everyone hello, okay? Thanks, Jay. All right, take care. Bye-bye. What a great show with uh outfitter Russ Jacoby and friend uh 
just a great family man and uh, getting his family involved and he really knows those buffalo as you can tell and I just want to thank you guys for listening. I wanted to go over uh, before we end here a couple more calls that I got at the National Wild Turkey Federation uh, convention in Nashville, Tennessee uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, The first is a a Pollard's Elite uh, box call from Charleston, Arkansas. Uh, J- Jimmy Pollard uh, actually has won the world championship so multiple times. He's a f- fantastic caller and makes his own turkey call. So check out this box call. Pollard Elite Box Call. Cool. It's a uh, real light in the hand. Uh, it's just a real nice sounding uh, Pollard's Elite calls uh, out of Charleston, Arkansas. And then I also got a aluminum uh, pot call. Pollard's Elite calls aluminum. I believe this is a diamond wood striker. Um, makes some good sounds. sounding call that's the Pollard Elite Aluminum Um, two nice calls from Jim Pollard world champion Um, I'm kind of a collector of turkey calls I've got piles of them and uh, never found one that I that I don't like Uh, it seems like I I like to collect them. So I want to thank you guys, the listeners. Um, thank you for going on iTunes and giving us uh, good reviews. Uh, thank you for giving us five-star ratings. And uh, until next week, God bless.